0: What is a Christian? That's the question that J.I. Packer poses to begin chapter 19 of his most helpful book, Knowing God. Outside of the Bible, I don't know of a better book that helps connect and bridge the knowledge of God with an experiential love for God. And I checked this morning. It is not in the bookstall. It will be next week. So what is a Christian? As you think of your answer to his question, I trust that we would be served by hearing Dr. Packer's answer to the question. Packer says the question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. And while there's a cultural pressure today to say that, well, everyone is a child of God, that's simply not found in the Bible. There is a clear precedent in the Bible that, yes, we all know something of God's love because we have been made in his image. We know something of God's love because we all experience the effects of even common grace. The word tells us that the rain falls on the just as well as the unjust. Packer continues, he says, Sonship to God is not a universal status into which everyone enters by natural birth, but rather it's a supernatural gift one receives through receiving Jesus. And so this sonship, what it means to be a son, a child of God, is not a natural sonship, it's an adoptive sonship. Packer goes on to say, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. And Packer concludes with this, Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. My heart has soared this week in preparation for this sermon. Uh, Just to be entrusted as believers with these truths is an unspeakable privilege. And yet to have the opportunity and the responsibility and the privilege to herald these truths this morning, I, uh, 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 it's hard to put into words the sweetness of this, this, uh, this moment. Throughout the last decade of pastoring, I've encountered more people who need this particular truth more than any other the truth of God's adopting love for them. And my prayer this week is that everyone under the sound of my voice would be convinced of God's love for sinners, as most clearly seen through the gift of his adoption of sinners. And so join me as I pray toward this end as we begin. Our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, Would you overwhelm us with unfathomable riches that are ours because we have been adopted by you. And we're thankful. We're thankful that we see and experience the fullness of who you are. The father's plan to adopt. The son's securing of that adoption, doing the work needed and the Spirit's sealing of that reality, helping us to experience it day in and day out. And so would you so move in our hearts to change us today for your glory? Would you help us behold you? Prepare our hearts to hear your word. Put the words into this mouth so that we can hear what you want us to hear. And so speak to us, O Lord. Your servants are listening. We pray in the matchless name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open them to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, we will walk through verses 1 through 11 this morning. And to rightly understand Galatians chapter 4 verses 1 through 11, we have to rightly understand what has happened up until Galatians chapter 4, 1 through 11. The previous three chapters have have been this summary. It's Paul's letter to the churches around the area of Galatia. And these Christians that he's writing to are primarily Gentile Christians. They are not Jewish Christians who grew up under the tutor, under the guardianship, under the help of the law. So they've not, they have not—they don't have that background. But these Gentile Christians are, are deserting the true gospel because people who were very familiar with the law would come in and would say, hey, listen, faith is good, but you also, if you want to be like God's people, look at what God's people have always done. And you have to begin to do those works too, particularly circumcision, right? Not the news any Gentile Christian wants to hear. Last week, we saw how that requirement to keep the law, to be made right with God, was really a misunderstanding of the law, a distortion of even the purpose of the law. The law was never meant to save anyone from their sin. No, the law was meant to reveal our sin and to reveal the need of a Savior for our sin. We saw last week that the law was a jailer, a custodian. The law was also this guardian or this babysitter until Jesus came. And once Jesus had come, then the way that you were made right with God was not to keep the law, the way that you were made right with God is to trust, to turn from your ability to keep any law, to earn any standing before God, and to trust in the work of Jesus. The work that Jesus had accomplished, which was a sufficient work. Everywhere everywhere that your work and my work failed, Jesus' work was perfect. And so his was the work that we need. And so apart from turning from our sin and placing our faith and trust in Jesus' work, no one can be made right with God. And chapter 3 ended even with this phrase, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. And so if you belong to Christ, then you are one in Christ with others. And not only are you one in Christ, but you're also recipients to the promise that he made to Abraham back in the book of Genesis. And so you find yourself that this this turning from sin, faith in Jesus, it sweeps us up, not just into kind of momentary relief, but it puts us in this arc of what God has been doing throughout all of human history. He's redeeming for himself a people from among all peoples, and he's doing it for his name's sake. Chapter four then continues this discussion. And this morning we're going to trace three sections of his argument. And then he will conclude with a warning. Three sections of the argument concluding with a warning. If I can just remind you, as we seek to understand what Paul intended for this original audience, put yourself in that number. What does this word say to them? And we don't then walk away. We ask the next question, understanding what it says to them, what does it say to us? How does God's word speak to us? Paul is writing not only to convince them of these truths, he's writing to convince you and I of these truths. And so this morning, I don't know where you stand in your relationship with the Lord. You're either a follower of Jesus or you're not, there's no other third kind of option, hybrid option. But wherever you're at, I would just encourage you, listen to his points today. See if you're persuaded by Paul's argument today. If you're not, it would be the joy of any Christian in this room to talk with you further about what do you believe, what do you not believe, anything not clear. But Paul is writing to so convince us, and to so convince us not merely that we would know but to so convince us so that we would respond appropriately to this one who's worthy. And so let's begin with the first section. Number one, enslaved to sin or enslaved in sin. Enslaved in sin. We see this in the first three verses. I want to begin by reading the first two Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, the word of the Lord says this, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave. Although he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. It's interesting what Paul does coming out of chapter 3. He's building on an image that he introduced in chapter 3, this idea of being an heir. You will inherit all of God's blessing that he promised to Abraham, and you will do this once you come to faith in him. His line of thought then at the beginning of chapter 4 is that when a child is an heir, when, when a child stands to inherit a fortune from his father and he's not of age yet to inherit it, he might as well be a slave. If you were to walk into a room and you were to see a four-year-old heir of everything and a four-year-old child of a slave, you would watch them and you would not know the difference because they're both under a guardian. They're both under the supervision. They're both under, even just functionally, the orders of another. This heir, while not yet of age can't spend the money how he would like he can't control his own schedule potentially he doesn't even control what he gets to eat for dinner for a while he looks nothing like an heir although legally he stands to inherit everything he looks nothing like an heir in fact functionally he lives like a slave under the supervision of another under the orders under the directions of another So Paul begins in chapter 4 with this analogy I believe to remind these gentile Christians that there was once a time where God's people were really under the law they were a slave to the law until it was until there was the appropriate time and I love how Paul says this until the date set by the Father. Maybe this is a, a truth that can easily be lost in this illustration, but it's the role that the Father plays in determining the timing for when the blessings would be released. And we see that thread of the good Oversight of the Father releasing these blessings at an appointed, predetermined time. We see that all throughout this letter. Well, so if that's the analogy that he begins chapter 4 with, is this idea that while a child, kind of under the guardian or the manager of others, you don't set to, to really enjoy the fullness of the inheritance, verse 3 then explains. What he's saying. Verse 3 then applies this illustration to these Galatian Christians. Listen to verse 3. So, we also, or so also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Like the child that was enslaved under a guardian who will be freed at the determined time of the father, so too these believers that he's writing to will be freed. And they are under slavery to what he calls the elemental things of the world. Before they were Christians, he gives us this picture with this phrase, while we were children. And so what has Paul done? Paul has written, and he's given this analogy to show that those who came up under the law were really not free under the law. That the law served as a guardian over them until the fullness of time would come, the the predetermined time when God would then make freedom possible to those that were under the law. And then in verse 3, in order to apply this, the Gentile Christians at this point could have said, Hey, Paul, we were never under the law. And Paul says, You're right. Because when you were a child, you grew up enslaved to the elemental things of this world. There is a lot of debate surrounding the meaning of that phrase. What are these elemental things of the world? And truth be told, after reading a lot of it this week, I don't know if I'm fully convinced of one over another. Yet I do think that a strong consideration of what's happening here is that Paul would be talking about these elemental things such as earth, wind, fire, these sort of not... Uh, elementary and then we graduate, but these basic concepts of the world. I believe if you look down at verses 8 and 9, that understanding of these elemental things would match what he says when he says, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. You were slaves to these elemental things. He uses that phrase even again in verse 9, weak and worthless elemental things. I'm convinced of this. I wasn't convinced of this. And I began to to look into this. And I'm lean this way because in Acts chapter 14, in this area to which Paul is writing this letter to, what we find is that these Galatians were worshipers of Zeus and Hermes. And this was the idea of the day. That if we could pay off these impersonal gods, then they wouldn't harm us. And so this is how they lived, right? If they were going to take a trip by sea, then what they would then make sacrifices to Poseidon so as to appease the God of the sea, these elemental things, so that we would have safe voyage in our travels. And I believe there's the connection. I believe what Paul is saying is that whether or not you were, verses 1 and 2, Under the law, kind of the guardian enslaved to the law or whether you were enslaved to these elemental things both are ways in which we are treating God as though he is a pagan God whether it's through the keeping of the law or making the sacrifices that are required we then are seeking to pay off God by the works that we can do in order to receive blessing. And I believe what Paul wants to do at the beginning of chapter four is just to say, whether it was under the law or whether it was false little g gods, this is a life of slavery. And that's what we were all born into. Born into this enslavement to our sin. it's just interesting to note even as we look around and we think about those that are bowing down to false little g gods day in and day out if you give yourself to worship false little g gods there is no rest in that these gods are fickle these gods are never really for you even when you make sacrifices to them you don't know whether that's sufficient. You don't know whether or not that will be accepted. You have to keep these God, little g-gods happy. You have to know what you need from them. And here's the bottom line with little g-gods. They will only be as good as your ability to use them. I'm helped In Isaiah chapter 45, or excuse me, chapter 46, this is the imagery that he gives us. To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me, that we would be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale, they hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. And they bow down, indeed they worship it. So you get the picture. We've taken our gold, we've taken our silver, we've fashioned, we've created literally a little G God. And now what are they going to do? Verse 7. Or or verse 6, they bow down and they worship it. Verse 7, they lift it upon their shoulder and they carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there and it does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from distress. These little g-gods are only as effective as you make them. They are limited by your power and your resources. How different is it to bow and to give your life to little g-gods who can't carry you versus giving your life to the God who in great love carries you? Oh, to have a God who is different. And if you don't have this living God, Then you are in slavery, whether that's bowing down to false little g- gods, or whether that's trying to earn God's favor by adhering to the law. I wonder this morning what you would say that, like, what are you enslaved to? I mean, apart from faith in Jesus, we are all enslaved to something. And so, how would you answer this question? Do this, or not a question. How would you fill in this statement? Do this and you will live. What's this? When I do this, then there's fullness of joy. When I do this, when I lay hold of this, when I can grab this, like that's what I was made for. You see, for some in our world, it's hijacking planes and flying them into buildings. And for others, unreached peoples, it's offering their children as sacrifices to false little g-gods. And yet for others, it's serving relentlessly at soup kitchens. The same spiritual powers that are at work to lead some to sacrifice children in order to earn God's favor are the, the same powers that are at work To lull professing Christians asleep, thinking that they can just work and do religious deeds in order to earn God's favor. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, makes clear that by our very nature, we are all under the dominion, the authority of the prince of the power of the air. That would be a reference to Satan. We are naturally, by nature, born with this sin nature that's opposed to God and under the temporary reign of Satan himself. So what is it that you're chasing this morning? With this false hope that if you find it, then you're going to find what you're looking for? I mean, are you tired of trying to appease little G-Gods? Whether it's power or career or relationships or pleasure, whatever, are you just tired of trying to appease these little g gods only to find that they don't care about you, that they don't deliver on the promises that they hold out? The first step towards freedom is to be aware and to be convinced that you indeed are living in slavery. And that's the point Paul drives home in these first three verses is those who had grown up under the law, the Jews, they couldn't experience freedom from it. But also, these mostly Gentile readers who didn't grow up under the guardian of the law, but rather have been enslaved to the elemental things of this world. And so whether you're Jew or whether you're Gentile, we are all enslaved in sin. The need is the same. Every person in this room, every person on the street that you live, every person in the office that you work in, every person in the class that you sit to, on the team that you play, for all the need is the same. Where in the world can we find the key to unlock these respective shackles? Leads us to our second section. Number 2, freedom from sin. Freedom from sin. So enslaved in sin, verses 1 through 3, freedom from sin, verses 4, and the first part of verse 5. Listen again to the word of the Lord, verse 4, first part of verse 5. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law. God graciously acts. There is not better news that you will hear than this today. God has graciously acted in order to make provision and freedom for your slave problem. And his intervention changes everything. Just as the the father has set a time for this child to no longer be under the guardian or the manager, so too God, at the perfect time, sent forth his son to redeem sinners from the condemnation that comes from living under the principle that says, if you just do this, then you will live, and then you will earn his favor. Friends, there is freedom from that. And there's freedom from that because of the gracious initiative of God the Father at just the right time, that he would send forth his son. Your slavery, both to the law and to the elemental things of the world, were meant to reveal your sin. We're meant to reveal to you the condemnation that you're under for your sin. And we're meant to reveal to you that at just the right time, God provided Jesus, who was born under the law, where where we were, yet he obeyed it perfectly so that his perfect righteousness might be credited to all of those who would turn from their sin and place their faith and their trust in Jesus alone. This Jesus who would pay the penalty for the sin of all who would repent and believe. This Jesus who would raise from the dead to live forever. When the fullness of time came, it was at the perfect time, it was in the perfect way, it was according to the Father's perfect plan. At just the right time. And all of this was true while we were enslaved. By our sin. Incapable of changing anything about our condition. God in great mercy and love would send forth his son. To rescue, to redeem enslaved sinners. I'm helped by Charles Spurgeon who would note about this. I didn't find the world in repentance. Uh, I didn't find the world in repentance seeking its maker. No, no. At the fullness of time, the offended God himself in infinite compassion broke the silence, took the initiative, and came forth for his enemies. The fact that Jesus was sent, it looks, it it helps us even think. Jesus wasn't, he, he didn't, come to existence at the sending forth. The fact that he was sent forth, it alludes to the fact, John 1, John 17 would make this clear. Even before the foundations of the world, there was a joy and a glory in which the Father and the Son had together. And so we're even able to sort of peer into the fact that God sent forth his Son. The Son had already been. He sent forth his Son. He had to be born of a woman. For if he was not born of a woman, he could not save humanity. Because sin came forth by humanity. And if he, couldn't, if he didn't come as a human, then he couldn't serve as our substitute. And he had to be born under the law. And I don't know, even after a week of just steeping in this truth, I don't know if I can If I even am close to fully understanding this condescension, the giver of the law submitted to that law. It's not enough merely that, that he died for our sins. We likewise needed a righteousness to stand before God. So we needed a clean slate in order to have our sins and our transgressions against the holy God removed, but we also needed a righteous full slate in order to stand before him. And so that's why he's born under the law and he perfectly obeys the law at every turn. So then, then when our sin and the penalty for our sin is placed upon him, then the reward of his righteousness is placed upon undeserving sinners so that we can stand before God having sins cleansed, No room, no need for shame before a holy God because of the work of Jesus, but also having a bounty of righteousness, a cup that runneth over with righteousness. Those are the things that you and I can't do. We can't manufacture for ourselves. Jesus fulfilled the law, and he gave us both of those slates. And this is where every other form of religion is so different. Because every other form of religion no matter what shape, no matter what name it's under, it takes this shape. You get what you pay for. You are relating to a God that constantly needs to be appeased. And so keep doing your works so that he will keep being okay with you. And yet this God This God who redeems, this God who sent his son, he is a God who pays. He pays for you. Huh. What? When every impulse and every other religious system calls you until you wear yourself out, you keep paying that God because he's worth it. In great mercy and love, this God pays for us? Why would we treat this God as a butler in which we think we can barter our way into his blessing? We find a redemption with this God that can't be found anywhere else. And so if you're burdened by your sin this morning, knowing that you've done things that you can't undo, I hope that you hear this opportunity as just another chance for you to respond to the truth that Jesus provides perfect redemption. Perfect. No longer do you have to be defined by your sin. You can be defined by his righteousness. No longer do you have to pretend to be someone that you're really not because Jesus knows who you really are. And he made provision for all of the sin. He paid your debt completely on the cross. And you can trust that that was a sufficient payment because he rose triumphantly on the third day. You can be redeemed if you will turn from your sin and trust in him alone. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, I would just plead with you. What is your response to the case that Paul has made? That there is no other way. Whenever you breathe your last, there is no other way that you will stand before a holy God with any hope of the very thing you were created for. Eternity with him? There's no hope for that apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? And if you believe it, then respond. Turn from sin and trust in him alone. And if you don't believe it, why? What is it that you're holding on to thinking will provide what you need in a manner that will be more complete and sufficient than what he's made possible? This is why he came, to redeem enslaved sinners of whom it was humanly impossible to free ourselves or to pay our penalty. I wonder this morning if you know this freedom, this freedom from sin's guilt and power. And the good news about knowing the freedom from sin's guilt and power is that there is coming a day where we will be freed from sin's presence altogether. Oh, what a day that will be. The arguments, the chapter, everything could have ended here. And it would have been more than sufficient to end here to just say, and he provided redemption for sinners. We could have all gone away in unparalleled joy just going, yes, he provides redemption for sinners. There is a way for you to have redemption. And God the Father has provided it through Jesus the Son, but he goes beyond redemption into the third section, and that's adopted as sons. Adopted as sons. We'll pick up at the second half of verse 5 and read to verse 7. Actually, I'll read all of verse 5. So that he might redeem those who were under the law That we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The glorious use of a comma in verse 5. Right? I've struggled with using commas all of my life. This is the glorious use of a comma. Because on the other side of the comma of verse five, there is this show-stopping, jaw-dropping draw, draw, beauty of what J.I. Packer would say: "This is the highest privilege that the gospel affords us." I read chapter 19 of the book *Knowing God* this week again, and I just I agree the way one pastor said: "I have thought more on justification than on on adoption. Justification, I have thought more that I can be declared." righteous before God. And this pastor says, I've thought more about justification than I've thought about adoption. And it's not that I should think less on justification. It's that I should think more on adoption. J.I. Packer would go on in chapter 19 to say, justification, being declared righteous before God, justification is the primary and most basic blessing of the gospel. For without justification, without being declared righteous before God, we are by nature under his judgment. His law condemns us. Guilt gnaws at us. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our maker. Packer says all other spiritual blessings flow from justification. And then he says this, beautiful. To be made right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved by God the Father is even greater. To be made right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is even greater. And Packer says closeness, affection, and generosity that's at the heart of the relationship God the Father has with his sons and daughters. I wonder this morning if you, if you are a professing Christian, I wonder this morning if you would say, when I think of my relationship with God the Father, I think affection, closeness, lavish generosity. The doctrine of God's adopting love is meant to convince us of his affection for us. Of his generosity towards us, of his closeness with us. There was great purpose in redemption. And the great purpose in redemption didn't stop at at removing the record of debt, it brings us somewhere even better. Some of you professing Christians think God wants nothing to do with you. And the doctrine of adoption says that is a lie. He wants everything to do with you. He personally wants to know you. Every Christian can be certain that they are loved by God. And where you look for that certainty makes all the difference in the world. Where do you look for the certainty that God does indeed love you? I have been helped over the years to think about C.J. Mahaney's advice on this point. He said, we all want to look within to find a reason for his love for us. How can I convince myself that God loves me? Let me look within and let me see what I find. And Mahaney says, any glance within will inform you of the sin within, which is reason that God should not love you. Thomas Watson, Puritan pastor, would put it this way. We have enough in us to move God to correct us, but nothing within us to move God to adopt us. Where in the world then does the glowing, stunning doctrine of adoption fit. It fits because it's based not on looking within you and not on looking within me. It's based on the heart of God the Father himself. When he looks within, he loves his people. And so therefore we exalt this good grace. God the Father wants you to be convinced. Don't look within, look to the doctrine of adoption. In verse six, Paul's explanation of how this good news is experienced by Christians now. He makes clear that Christians have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This can be sort of the forgotten reality of what it means when we come to Christ, but it is the reality that we need day in and day out. If we are going to experience and be sealed in the truth that has now been conferred to us and upon us, then we need the Spirit in order to experience that. The Holy Spirit, the promise of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, this was the promise of all the prophets. This was the central piece to the new covenant that God promised to make with his people. This is going to be, we will see for the rest of this letter, one of the main themes of this letter. So what does it mean that the Spirit indwells us? Verse uh, 6, listen again to verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And maybe you just listened to verse 6 and you thought, huh? That's kind of underwhelming. Like, I get the Spirit of the living God? Like, where are the miracles? (laughs) Like, where's all the supernatural stuff that I can do? I think we can want the obvious and radical experiences that we see in certain places throughout the New Testament. But the New Testament gives us way more examples and experiences of what it looks like to have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit just through the ordinary means of grace. It's one thing to become God's children by adoption, You're redeemed, you're adopted immediately. And yet there are days where you may not feel that legal truth, that legal reality about you. I am one of His. And so what do you do? Well, we don't run to works to try to make ourselves feel that way. And yet that's what many of us do. No, we lean into the presence of the Holy Spirit who is confirming that truth within us, helping us to experience that reality. And that reality takes shape over time. The Holy Spirit, He does indeed bring us into this reality. His Spirit changes us from seeing God merely as a resource that we need to seeing Him as a, a, a Father to love and lean on every day. God sent His Son to adopt us, and He, sp- he sends His Spirit to convince us that that is really true. And I love the example. We can now cry out, Abba, Father. This would have been the Aramaic. This was the street language of the Jews. Timothy George is helpful here. He says, Abba, Father is less a cry of infancy and more a cry of intimacy. And we may think, I'm never going to say Abba, Father. It's kind of childish. No, in fact, it takes us to the heart of intimacy with God. The, the word is used in two other places, I think, to give us a glimpse into this reality. What is the Spirit bringing about in us when we cry like this? Romans eight fifteen. We don't have a spirit of fear, but we have one that cries out, Abba, Father. And so the Spirit then is helping us not have a spirit of fear, but helping us have a spirit of trust, a spirit that's able to, to not swerve away whenever times are hard. The God is my butler perspective That's fearful. That that leads us to go, God, I'll ask you for this. I have no clue whether or not this is even remotely something that you would do for me. But this cry, this cry brings peace. And let's just be clear. Romans 8, 15, talking about how we can cry to God, not have a spirit of fear, but we can cry to God and have a spirit of trust and confidence, that doesn't mean that if we cry to God this way, then trial and struggle and pain and difficulty will not come because two verses later, Paul actually says, yes, you will cry this and you will need to cry this because the struggle is coming. The transition doesn't happen there because there's no reason for fear. It happens because there's a spirit who helps us not grow fearful. We can now trust And that trust, I think, we see put on display perfectly in the other occasion in which this word, Abba, Father, is used. Mark chapter 14, verse 36. On the night in which Jesus would be betrayed and tortured and arrested and killed, he would cry out. And he cries out, Abba, Father, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus in his humanity didn't want this hardship. And so what's his instinct? His instinct is to cry out, Abba, Father. And Christian, that is what the Spirit is doing in your heart and life. It's leading you to cry out in moments of uncertainty, Abba, Father. Not what I want, but what you will. Leading us to cry out, and confidence and, and trust. And I read this truth in Galatians chapter 4, and I think about the truth in Mark chapter 14, and I just think, if we're sons, this is what he says in verse 7, then we are heirs with Christ. And The same words that Jesus could utter are the words that you and I can utter we share in the inherited rights of Jesus Himself in relation to His Father. And so, friends, professing Christians, pray. Pray specifically that God, by His Spirit, would remind you that you are His child. We need the spirit to not lose hope. We need the spirit of the living God to work redemption and adoption truths deep into our hearts and in our minds. And I love verse seven. Verses, uh, the previous section, one through six, it's all kind of in the plural. Verse seven, he gets singular. It's as if he wants to look every listener in the eye, toe to toe, knee to knee, eye to eye. And he says, I want you to be personally convinced that if a son no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir, through God. And he sort of ends that section with those words, through God. It's what his whole letter has been about, through God. He longs for you to be convinced, and he sends his spirit to help seal and help work out that convincing Again, I'm helped by what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, I once knew a good woman who was the subject of many doubts. And when I got to the bottom of her doubts, I found this. She knew that she loved Christ, but she was afraid that he did not love her. Oh, I said, that is a doubt that will never trouble me. Always encouraging when the pastor says that. (laughs) But by any possibility, because I am aware of this that my heart is so corrupt naturally that any love for God never would have gotten there without God first putting it there. And so Spurgeon said to this lady who's wrestled with doubts, I love God, but I don't know if he loves me. Spurgeon says, you may rest quite certain that if you love God, it is the fruit and not the root. It is the fruit of God's love for you. And you may conclude With almost absolute certainty that if you love God, it is because God has first loved you. God longs for you to experience the reality of your adoption. And because of that, he concludes this whole section with a warning. And that's the last thing. The warning. We see this in verses 8 through 11. However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. And the logic is clear. You turn back to the law, slavery. You turn back to worshiping false little g gods, slavery. The bondage that you gave up to the elemental things of this world, you pick back up when you try to earn God's favor. You can't earn it, Galatians. You can't earn it, covenant life church. The religious can be just as lost as the irreligious. How? Because both are trying to be their own savior. It's as if Paul says, how dare you turn back to the slavery with with which you have been set free at such a costly price from. I would encourage you this week to just listen to Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Just go back and read it and just see the picture. Like, why in the world would you go and seek to draw water from cisterns that can't hold? Like, what, what are you thinking? On August 16, 2007, police officers in Vienna, Austria, were dispatched to Joseph Stott Prison. Upon arrival, in search of the premises, they found 23-year-old Detlef Feddersen. Upon the roof, the ex-convict who was released two weeks earlier was trying to break back into the prison through the roof. When asked about his odd plan, he said his plan was to break in and blend in with the inmates. When asked why he would try such a thing, Feddersen responded, because life was so much easier on the inside." They feed you, they do your washing, they even let you watch TV, and I quote, which is a lot more than my mother does for me, end quote. I come across this story and I think, how ridiculous is this guy? And He's experienced freedom, and yet he's breaking, he's trying to break back into the prison in order to be put back in bondage. But maybe the better question this morning is how ridiculous are we in our attempts to try to trade the riches of Christ that we have, the adopting grace that we've experienced, in for lesser things? And so what are the areas of your life whereby you're disregarding your standing as a son or a daughter of God? Like, where are you choosing to run back to these broken cisterns, these weak and elemental things that really can't provide what you're hoping they will? What are you counting on that's going to grant you approval in the eyes of God when you stand before your maker? Those would be good questions for you to consider and to talk to a friend about. Well, there's only one answer, though, to that question. And that is to say, I am relying fully on the work of Jesus that he has done in paying a debt that I couldn't afford and giving me righteousness that I could have never earned. And if you're willing to turn from sin and trust in him, then one of the means of grace that God has given his people is that so that they would never forget that gospel. He's given them a meal, a meal that they would take together. A meal for those who are adopted sons and daughters. And it's not some ritual that's similar to law keeping, that we kind of take the Lord's Supper so that we can earn something from God. No, that's not why He's given us this. The blessing of God does not come from eating and drinking, it comes from repenting and believing. But He has given those who have repented and who are believing this meal to commemorate that good news. And so this meal is to be approached and taken with an attitude of grateful worship. And it's to be evidenced by those uh, in the lives of those who are turning from their sin and they're walking in reconciliation with others. This is a meal for baptized Christians, those who have followed the Lord in obedience it's a, it's a meal for baptized Christians who are members in good standing of a local church that preaches the true gospel that Paul preached, that we preach, and hopefully, if you're not a part of this church, that, you, that, that is preached at your church. And so baptized Christians, members of, in good standing of another local church that preaches the same gospel, that's because of the Christian religion and the Christian faith is not this self-identification religion. It's not just me and God, and me and God, and me and God, and I decide kind of how everything is. No, it's, it's God and I, and I have been adopted into his family, and the family gives oversight even to my soul. And so this meal is for this family. And so if this is you this morning, once the music begins to play, I would invite you to come forward, take your elements. You can come down the center and go around, take your elements, go back to your seats. Once everybody has them. That will be partaking, we will will partake them together. And if it's not you this morning, I would just ask you to consider what's keeping you from trusting in Jesus alone. Talk to anyone here about that. I hope that even in the future, you would be able to come to partake of this meal because you are now an adopted son of this good father. Let's pray.